0: Uh, tonight, in the book of Titus, my plan this evening uh, this evening we are uh, we are few and far between i 'm glad we 're not so far between and no one's uh, we 're not um, quite so far away as sometimes we are on a Sunday evening what i 'd like to do uh, this evening there are some things we can do to have a little bit of flexibility when when we are this few and that 's a nice thing and we, I had already planned to only do one verse this evening. And so what I, what I'd like to do is just um talk through this one verse with you and and actually um take some opportunity tonight to have a little more interaction than we normally would to let you uh think with me about this verse. And then I thought what we would do is um <clears throat> Lord willing have some time at the end and we'll have a little uh Q and A if uh if that's uh, something you have an interest in. Uh so if you already have a Q or an A that you uh that you have um, we can talk about that, whether it's from this morning's message uh, or just something you've you've had a burning question in your mind, and uh, so we'll see what kind of time we have left after we work through um, this verse together. Um, quite a change from this morning. This morning we went through four chapters, and tonight we're in one lonely little verse. So there's the that's quite the uh, the swing from what we've done this morning. But we're in Titus chapter number one, and let's read together uh, verse number nine. This this verse is talking about the overseers who Titus is supposed to appoint, and that overseer, verse 9 tells us, must be someone who he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And this verse comes to us at the, at the close of Paul's instructions to Titus about what, it, what an elder really looks like. And we discussed last week, um, Paul starts out by reminding Titus um, what Titus was supposed to do. He says, this is why I left you in Crete. And, and why did Paul leave Titus in Crete? He had something very specific for him to do. What did Paul want Titus to do? Okay, he wanted him to place elders in every town just as he had been appointed. That was part of, that was part of Titus's job. He was supposed to go systematically town to town appointing multiple elders in each of those towns to lead the church. So Titus was going around as someone who was going to recognize and then appoint qualified leadership for these very young churches. All right. And what else was he supposed to do? He was appointing leadership and he was doing something else. Okay, absolutely. That's part of part of what an elder was supposed to do. And that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, And so certainly that was part of Titus's job description. Um, There's something else I'm thinking that we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at verses five through eight. So he's supposed to appoint elders as well as do what? If you look just a, a little bit earlier, one of those very first verses gives you a hint on what Titus's job description was. Anybody found it yet? Like, man, we're just not used to talking on a Sunday night. Okay, good, very good. He was supposed to put in order, he was supposed to, Put what remained into order, right? So the things that were lacking, he was supposed to take care of. Remember, we talked, uh, we talked last week, uh, if you were here, we talked about what were those things that were lacking. Well, the picture we have of what happened in Crete is that Paul came to Crete just very briefly. Uh, he came there, um, probably in between imprisonments. It's a little island, a tiny little island. It was probably just on the uh, on the journey on 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 boat. They may have just harbored there for a little while. And Paul didn't spend an extended time in Crete like he did in other cities. Basically, he had time to be there and he evangelized and they saw some believers. And then Paul had to move on. And so you have this fledgling church that needs a lot of help. There were things that that Paul didn't have time to do. He didn't have time to put things in order. And so he leaves Titus behind. He says, Titus, I need you to take care of this. I want to I want you to put some things in order. And I also want you to appoint elders. And so really, the picture we have of the church um, that Titus is ministering to at Crete is a very young church that that needs leadership. um, That it's at a very sensitive young stage. All right. This is this is a lot different than the situation we found Timothy in as we've been studying through Timothy. In Timothy's situation, Paul's constantly telling Timothy to be fighting against all of these different heretical views that have actually sprung up within the church. Um, because you had a, you had churches that Timothy was ministering to that had existed for a lot longer than the church in Crete, so they actually already had some established order, and they were fighting a whole different kind of battle. The church in Crete is fighting the battle of being brand new, and needing help from the from the ground level up. All right, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you at all about any other kind of church, but this is a this is a brand new church. All right, it's it's just getting going all across the island of Crete. Um, there are believers who are beginning to to get together, and so Paul leaves Titus to do the work that Paul cannot do. And so he said, I want you to appoint elders in every town as I directed you, and then he writes down the directions that he gave him. He writes down this list of elder qualifications. And so last week, we looked at God's requirement for elders on what they must be, All right, what they had to be in their character. And uh, the two main headings we looked at last week are they had to be able to manage their family and they had to be able to control their character. All right, So their family, um, they... They needed to be a one-woman man when it came to their home life. And they also needed to have children who were believers and submissive believers. And then when it came to the elder's own character, the repeated theme is they have to be above reproach. Um, Their character has to be um, unimpeachable. Um, They have to have qualified character. And if you remember last week, we said there are some distinct differences between this list in Titus and Paul's commands to Timothy. There's a lot of overlap, but there are some things that are very different. And one thing that's very different in these lists uh, is that this list is actually a lot more orderly than the list in Timothy. The list in Timothy includes positives and negatives. They all kind of run together. You have um, the one characteristic of what an elder had to do. What is the one characteristic from the list in Timothy of what an elder had to be able to do. There's only one thing in that list that was a doing. What is that one thing? Okay, he had to be able to teach. But that's just included along with all these other character things. Um, well, what we're going to see tonight in verse number 9, Paul is going to repeat um, what an elder must be able to do. And it's going to have some of the same idea, only he's going to fill out the idea of what it means that an elder is able to teach. And so he's actually going to um, expand on the idea of what it means that an elder must be capable of teaching. And that's what we're going to find out in verse number 9. Uh, and yet that comes at the end. It's been a very ordered list. He said, here's what he has to be at home, and here's what his character is like. And he told a lot of things that his character must not be. All right, There's this whole list of the nots, all right? the negative side. Um, he can't be somebody uh, who is arrogant, not proud, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, or greedy for gain. Those are all things that must not be true of the elder, and he does a contrast in verse 8, and he says, but this is what he has to be, all right? This is a very ordered, logical list, and that's not exactly what we see happening on the Timothy side, all right? So then he tells him that this elder to be qualified has to be hospitable and a lover of good. That's both things and people and self-controlled and upright and holy and disciplined. And now we come to verse 9, so that sets the context, the context of where we are. And now Paul says, okay, Timoth- uh, Titus, let me also tell you what an elder must be able to do. And basically, in verse number nine, to summarize, um, Paul is going to tell Titus that elders must have personal belief in right doctrine that enables them to teach and rebuke others. All right. That's a summary statement of what verse nine tells us. And sometimes that can be a helpful thing Um, since we're going to work through this passage together. Let me just encourage you, as you think about your own your own Bible study, uh, sometimes it can be a really helpful thing for you uh, to just write down a summary statement of of a paragraph or of a verse that you read. Um, What what is this verse saying? And sometimes when you write it out um, in your own words, it, it helps you think through and you have to really be able to grasp what what is being said. And so let me encourage you to do that. Just write like a a synopsis or a summary statement. I mean, what's the point? If I asked you, you know, what's the point of Titus or what's the point of Titus 1-9? You could do it on a big level like the whole book, and we should be able to do it on a verse level. What's the idea here? And the idea here is personal belief, right doctrine, and the ability to teach and rebuke. And so let's flesh that out and see where where that came from. All right, how did I come up with that? Verse 9 says, he, referring to the elder, must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it and so let's just study this verse together and when we're studying a verse um, we have already studied the context and that's always the right place to start when you're studying your bible you need to know how this verse fits with the rest of what's going on and we've even already in in these introductory comments made some comments about how titus is connected to other books all right so there's an immediate context of the words that come right before verse 9 and the words that come right after and we're going to see that as well so context is very important as well as knowing how this book fits within within the broader picture and so that's where you bring in all your understanding that this is another pastoral letter this was written before 2 Timothy it's coming to Titus we know his situation uh, so we can see where this book fits in our, in our understanding of the New Testament and so then you get down after you know the big picture and you, you have a grasp of, of what the context is, then it's time to narrow down and say, all right, what, is, what are these words telling us? And that's the thing about being a Christian Bible reader. Uh, we have to care about words, and we have to care about every single word and how those words um, interact with each other, how they go together. Um, we, we care about words. So I'm sorry, John, I know they're not numbers, um, but we still have to care about these kind of things, all right? John, he's, he's a he's math guy, so he likes to uh, talk about all of the numbers that are here. So Titus 1-9, he was home, and now we're going to start talking about words, and he's to go all that, that English stuff. But uh, if that's kind of where you are tonight, uh, you need to remember that uh, the words are, are where we find the truth, and so we have to care about these individual words, and we study them. So what we first read is that he must do something, all right? Um, What kind of word is the word must? All right, I'm reading from the English Standard. I realize you might have something a little bit different. The English Standard says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word. Um, What kind of word is must? Okay, it's an imperative, which is a command. That's very good. You even used the grammatical term for it. I appreciate that. Way to go, Glenn. All right, it's an imperative. It's a command, all right? And that automatically means something to us in our Bible study, all right? what does that mean for us as we look at this verse? What that means is what Paul's about to say is not an option. All right? this, is, this is a command. This is something that must be true about the elder or about the overseer. He must be someone who there's something that's true about him. So this isn't, this isn't an optional um, requirement. This is something that must be true. All right? So we note that it's a command. And what is, what is it that he must be able to do? Well, he must be able to hold firm. All right that's our that's our complete verb there. He must be able to hold firm. He must be able to to grasp something tightly, all right um, And the idea of of holding firm um, is such a it's such a neat picture because it's not talking about something physical, but we've all had that experience of grabbing hold of something and and not letting it go. all right uh, I don't know how many of you um, when your families were growing up. Uh, ever did the thing when when you got ready for prayer around a meal you all held hands around the table you guys ever do that in your families all hold hands around the table all right um my family didn't do that um we prayed before the meals but we didn't we didn't hold hands but we we'd go over to friends houses and they did they did do that and uh and i had plenty of experiences of, of holding firm during prayer time because it was new for us and inevitably I was decide one of my brothers who was going to be in a stinker of a mood and so he'd either be squeezing my hand as tightly as he could or he'd be trying to like tickle my arm and it's prayer time so of course you're not allowed to be squirming or distracting in any way and so you know he's and and you're you're holding on as tight as you can for dear life and you're you're just hoping that the amen comes soon so you can either laugh or cry out in pain, or whichever the right response is. But you're, you're holding on. You're grasping tightly. And, uh, and, and Paul says, look, there has to be something that the elder is able to grasp onto, to hold onto. Um, one helpful thing um, for us in our, in our Bible studies is to see how words are used in other places. And so let me just uh, tell you about one passage, and you're going to be so happy to do this. It's Matthew 6:24. So we're actually going to go to passage, and you're going to feel completely at home because this is in the Sermon on the Mount, all right? And uh, that's one of the reasons I picked this verse, because there's nothing like going to a passage that you go, oh, man, uh, I, I know what's going on in this, in this passage. I remember the messages from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, so this is going to be good. All right, Matthew 6:24. I want you to listen and see if you can um, see if you can pick out which word is the same word that Paul is going to use um, in verse nine. All right, Matthew six twenty four. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. All right, anybody remember that message on uh, that was just a I mean the whole sermon on the Mount has just been a tail kicker, but that message particularly um, it is impossible. Christ says it is impossible to have divided loyalty. That was the whole theme of this section. It is impossible for you to be a kingdom citizen and have divided loyalty, whether it's money or anything else. All right. You have to be single in your devotion. All right. So looking at verse 24, what do you think? What's the word? That's the same word um, that Paul uses when he says hold firm. Anyone want to take a guess? Because the word hold firm doesn't show up in verse 24. I I realize that. But there is a word that is the exact same. Okay, devoted. That's exactly. Excuse me, that's exactly right. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. That's a picture of what holding firm is. You're clinging to something, to the exclusion of everything else, right? So if you're devoted to money, uh, then you're going to despise um, following God and being a citizen of his. But if you are devoted to God, you're holding on to God, you're willing to let everything else go. All right, that's the picture of devotion. That's the same thing uh, when Paul says he must be someone who holds firm, to the trustworthy word. Alright, he clings to it. He holds on to it to the exclusion of all else. And I think this should um, it should make obvious sense to us that this is what must be true about an elder. He's someone who holds firm. And what is he holding firm to? He he's not shaking, he's devoted, he's holding firm to the trustworthy word. Alright? What is the trustworthy word? All right, well, the first thing we, we note about whatever this word is, it's a word that we can rely on. It, it's a word that is trustworthy. In other words, it deserves your our trust and our attention. It's something that isn't going to fail. It's, it's not going to fail you. Uh, and the word that the elder was supposed to hold on to was something that was never going to fail anyone else either. And the trustworthy word is really Paul's shorthand for something, an idea that we, we saw even with Timothy. When he, ref, he talked to Timothy about the deposit it had been entrusted to him. Paul had this perspective that, that the truth, um, right doctrine, going back to this morning, orthodoxy. Orthodoxy was a word, an objective message. All right? It's so important for us to go again and again um, to God's word and say over and over again, it seemed like Paul and Jesus and all the rest of these writers thought that there was an objective, clear message. That it's something that you could either affirm or reject. It wasn't, it's not just out there in the realm of ideas. There's, there's actually a word, a message. All right? um, something that's come up in our talking about gospel evangelism, even in Sunday school, is that the gospel is what? It's a, it's a message. It's a, it's a word. It's a proclamation. So the gospel is actually not actions. It's not, I, I do the gospel by giving to the poor. No, the gospel is a message. It certainly is lived out in many different ways, but the gospel is a message. And Paul here is talking to Titus about a clear word, a message, a trustworthy word. And by that, he's referring to all the truth of, of orthodox, of correct doctrine. All right. He's talking about right doctrine here. And he says the elder must be able to hold firm to that. And that word comes from somewhere. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught as taught and that's an important little addition um because especially think about the island of crete where you have a new church uh you have the apostle paul who had come through and had done a lot of teaching and now you have titus who has to come through and do a lot of teaching and so the people there who embraced the truth of the gospel were relying on the accuracy of the message that had been told to them all right they had been taught something and that's not any different from all of us right um so many times we we get so familiar. We're so familiar with um, the Bible and the truth of the Bible. Um, we forget that all of this has come to us as people have have taught, starting with the apostles, and being passed down from generation to generation. And other people have taught others, and the gospel has been taught from one generation to the next generation. And if at any point people abandon the accurate teaching of the Word of God. Um, then we have a whole group of people who who no longer believe the truth or in some cases are even exposed to it. All right. The gospel, the, the word of truth that we have in the Bible, is something that has to be taught to us. It's not inborn. It's not innate. Uh, we don't we don't come into the world with an ability to know God's expectations of us and his way of salvation and the truth about him and his plans that has to be explained to us. And that's explained to us in this word of God and And Paul tells Titus, look, these elders must be people who can hold on to the word that's been taught to them. This is not so different than what Paul told Timothy about faithful men. What did what did Paul what was Paul's instruction to Timothy about faithful men and the word? Part of Timothy's job description was to give the word to faithful men. And then what would those faithful men do? Okay, so they would teach others also, all right? So you give the word to men who are faithful, who are reliable, and then they pass that word on to somebody else who is also faithful and reliable, and the teaching process continues, all right? It is an ines- it's just inescapable that, that we are reliant, um, not, on, not on tradition, as some would say, but we are reliant on the message that has been taught, um, by the apostles and then has come down to us through all these many years. Alright? An elder has to be someone who can hold on to that trustworthy word just like they've been taught. This is a requirement for them personally. Alright? It's talking about what the elder is in and of himself. He's someone who hangs on to the truth. Alright. Um, what does that what does that assume? If he's someone who is able to hang on to the truth, um, what does that assume about that person as an elder? Right? There are some just assumptions that are a part of that. What do you think? Okay, integrity. Good. That's a, that's just an assumed reality. This is a person who's a person of integrity. What else? He's a student of the word. If you're going to hold firm to the trustworthy word, then you better know what that word is, right? Absolutely. So we, we definitely have the, he's a personal student. What else maybe comes to mind? If this person is someone who's able to hold on to this trustworthy word, what else has to be true about this kind of individual? Faithful. All right. So this isn't someone who um, varies between belief and unbelief, who, who isn't personally convicted, convinced that, that this word is true. This is someone who faithfully continues in their belief even about doctrine. Um, and this is someone who, who has, you call it like ballast. You guys know what a ballast is? Like in a ship, you know, it, it keeps the ship upright. I mean, I was no Navy guy and, and I haven't really been in that many ships, but I know how ballast works and, and it keeps your, keeps your ship upright, keeps it from tipping. Um, there are some people and they, they just alternate all the time on on doctrinal views and they kind of flip from one thing to the next thing. And, and one moment, uh, maybe a difficult passage means they say it means one thing and then the next minute they, they change their mind and they flip over and it means something else. And uh, maybe even someone that has hobby horses that and they, they head this direction, and then they head that direction. They're, they're all over the place. They keep changing their minds. Uh, this is someone who's not faithful, who isn't convinced that these things are accurate, and we just, we just keep on living them out. Uh, this is the person who maybe it, it's easy for them to be attracted to, to the next new idea that's coming, coming down the road, the new doctrinal idea is what I'm talking about. And so someone brings up a different, a different doctrinal idea, and they go, ah, well, that sounds kind of good. I'm going to change my mind, and now I'm going to go this new direction. Um, that actually contradicts scripture. They're not, they're not a faithful person, right? That kind of person is not fit to be someone who is a leader over God's people. Not that the leader over God's people is always right, but he's someone who is faithful. He holds on to this word. He doesn't vary from belief to unbelief, um, from one perspective to another perspective. Even though he's not always right, he is convinced on the essential core of truth, all right? He, he's a person with ballast. He, he has a center, all right? Good. Anything else come to mind? You think, what? what's an assumption that's true about this person who's able to hold firm to the trustworthy word? He's got integrity. He's got faithfulness. He's a student. He has to know what this trustworthy word is. Okay, good. It's not, he has to be able to be teachable himself. Um, Paul's talking about people that have been taught. And that's a process that just goes on and on. It, that, that never quits. The teaching of the word... Um, N- never ends and so you can't have an elder who is a person who's completely unteachable who can't learn anything from anyone except himself um that's a big problem all right you have to be someone who is who holds firm to the word that he's been taught that he embraces what has been told to him all right something else that they came to mind if he's holding firm to the trustworthy word um what would what would shake loose that holding firm i mean what causes that when when people let go and and they stop holding firm to the word What are some causes of that? Okay, deception. All right? So you could certainly have someone who they're deceived into thinking that something is true when it's not. So you have to have an elder who's capable of good discernment and who's not going to get duped into buying into a philosophy or a doctrine that's untrue. All right? And that's an assumption here. If he holds firm, he's going to avoid deception. What else are you thinking? I heard, I don't know, Jen or somebody say something. What's that? Okay, lack of trust. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they're just people who, um, it turns out in the crucible, maybe of suffering or maybe just the crucible of time, time goes by and you find out that they really, they really weren't confident that the word of God is true or maybe that it's sufficient. Maybe they, they lost confidence that, man, the word of God can meet all of our needs. And so they start chasing other ways. All right. Uh, That's someone who doesn't meet an elder qualification because when an elder is, is someone who must be able to hold tightly to this word. Personally, all right. There's something unique about um, there are many things that are unique um, about the job of an elder. Um, but one of the things that's unique about the job of an elder is uh, you can't you can't be an elder who is impartial to the message um, that you give. All right. There's no professional distance in being an elder. Uh, you, for instance, you can have a lawyer and you can have a lawyer who's a defense attorney who ends up defending somebody who he's not even really sure. That the guy's innocent right but he's got his job to do and so he does his best within the law to defend this guy even though he's not really sure that the guy's innocent all right that doesn't work uh when it comes to comes to an elder you can't have an elder that goes well i'm not really sure this is true but i'm gonna get up and preach it anyway and i'm not convinced myself but i mean maybe someone else will be convinced all right that, that doesn't work all right? it's not going to happen uh, this is someone who has to be personally convinced about the truth of what they're declaring uh, otherwise there 's no effectiveness there 's no personal conviction, and so an elder is someone who the truth has has grabbed hold of him personally and he has a personal possession of this truth it 's not some distant well, this is what I heard, or this is what somebody else says it has to be something that that is his own um, you can't have an, you can 't have an elder who is who is constantly saying i 'm not really sure about this, but somebody else was so i 'll just tell you about it. no it, do- it doesn 't work It might work fine for a defense lawyer doesn't work for an elder this is someone who personally has a grasp of the truth okay an elder spiritual leadership one writer says an elder's spiritual leadership in the church is not built on his natural abilities his education his common sense or his human wisdom it is built on his knowledge and understanding of scripture his holding fast to the faithful word and on his submission to the Holy Spirit's applying the truths of that word in his heart and life. In other words, there's a personal interaction that goes on here. And it's not about um, an elder being the smartest in the church, uh, not having the most common sense, not having the most natural ability, but it's someone who has knowledge and conviction that these things are true, and I'm going to hang on to them and not let them go. Okay? This is a, the personal side of what an elder must be. All right? He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And the verse doesn't end there. The next two words are really important words. Uh, It says, so that, and it goes on to say, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. When you read a so that, um, I love reading a a so that, because it's just a a neon sign uh, that there's going to be a clarification. When you read so that, what, what are you about to read? What are you about to find out? When you read the two little words, so that. What's that? Okay, good. You're going to find out what, what you're trying to accomplish. You're going to find out what the purpose is, what the reason is. All right? So every time you read so that in your Bibles, immediately your brain should just go click. I mean, to get told the reason. I mean, there's a reason that an elder must hold on tightly to this trustworthy word. All right? What's the reason that Paul tells Titus, that, I mean, the elder has to meet this qualification. He's hanging on to the trustworthy word that's been taught to him so that he can do two things. One he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, all right? And in his ability, this exactly matches what Paul had already told Timothy, that, that an elder must be able to teach, all right? Same idea here. He may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That idea of give instruction, uh, that's actually a word that's even used of what the Holy Spirit does when he's called the paraclete or, or the helper, the one who comes alongside and who clarifies, all right. This is the work of the person who who comes alongside others and says, "I, I want to explain this to you. I, I want to make this. I want to make this clear." Uh, this is someone who is able to give instruction, and it's a particular kind of instruction. All right, a pic- particular kind of teaching. What kind of teaching is it? Well, it's instruction in sound doctrine. All right. Now, we we probably say the words "sound doctrine." It's kind of become a catchphrase. But what does sound doctrine mean? I mean, we. We don't we don't really use that expression for anything else that I can think of in life. That this is, is something that is that is sound. I guess we might call something sound, but we say sound doctrine. It's like the two words belong together. You know, like they're all oh yeah, sound doctrine. Uh, but what does it mean when we say a doctrine is sound? Sound doctrine, doctrine that you can hear. It makes a sound. And what are we talking about when we talk about sound doctrine? Okay, correct, truthful, the tr- the truthful doctrine. Any other thoughts when you hear sound doctrine? What goes through your mind? It stands the test of time. Okay, it stands the test of time. Okay, built on a firm foundation. We would we would certainly use that um, when you talk about that's a sound building. Well, we mean it's it's not going to fall down tomorrow. Uh, good, it's, it's a sound. Okay, absolute. Um, this is this is sound, reliable, absolute. Right. Good. Uh, those are those are all helpful things to think about when you read sound doctrine. Um, and another aspect of sound doctrine that is in the word itself and that we see in other places in, in scripture is really the idea of healthy helpfulness, all right? It's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a word of, of healthiness. It's not a diseased doctrine, right? And there's a difference. I mean, we need to understand that there's different kind of doctrine in the world today. Um, there's sound doctrine, there's, there's healthy doctrine, and there's diseased doctrine, doctrine that is, is neither stable nor reliable nor trustworthy. In fact, it's, it's a poisonous doctrine doctrine instead of a instead of a healthy doctrine. All right, and and Paul says, look, Titus, you have to be able to instruct people in in the sound doctrine. So you have to know what wrong doctrine is, uh, and you have to be able to tell people what right doctrine is, the the doctrine that's actually going to help them. Doctrine that's going to help them grow and mature and develop and that will stand the test of time. Because as we embrace what is sound doctrine, then we put our confidence in a a foundation that isn't going to be shaken, all right? That's the importance of sound doctrine, of healthy doctrine, as opposed to disease doctrine. And you can get your hands on any number of disease doctrines that are are all around us today, especially thanks to the blessing, and perhaps you might say curse, of things like the Internet and multiple books. I mean, there is disease doctrine everywhere. And so we have to, the elder has to be somebody who is able to give instruction in what is that, the healthy side of doctrine, all right? And as I was looking at this passage for tonight, I just, there's so many connections even to the message from this morning um, about a, a humble pursuit of the right doctrine, and, and it just strikes me yet again that we, can, we cannot go anywhere in her New Testaments without, running into the idea that doctrine is something that is objective and reliable and something that can be grasped and something that can be taught. Um, it's not something that is uncertain and unreliable, and it's so complex that nobody can figure it out. I mean, there is something as sound doctrine that can be explained and understood and personally held onto. all right? It's not in the world of theory and Neverland. Sound doctrine is something that is helpful. It is healthy for all of us as opposed to the disease doctrine. All right, so he's supposed to be able to do that to give instruction, and what else is an elder supposed to do um, because he personally hangs on to the word, right? Because he personally holds on to it, he's able to give instruction, and what else is he able to do? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great picture of, of not being able to hang on to that, to that sound doctrine, not even able to, not only can you not explain it, but there's that personal temptation to, to fall away from that yourself, and there, there's that enticement, that being drawn away. And an elder has to be somebody who is qualified to maintain that personal conviction that the word is true, and and I'm continuing to learn it, but all that it says is true, and I'm not going to get pulled away from that. And so because you have that, not being, a, uh, not being pulled away from that truth, then you're able to tell others what that right doctrine is so that they're not enticed as well, so that it's clear in their minds. Okay? What else does this verse tell us? He, okay. It's not only to be able to give instruction, it's also to give rebuke. It says... We we're able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Right? The assumption in this is there are going to be people who contradict sound doctrine, who contradict healthy doctrine. And part of the elder's job description is that he is someone who can rebuke those kind of people. Um, those who contradict it, the word those, definitely seems to have the connotation of those within the church who contradict it. All right? He's talking about a specific group of people, not just anybody in the whole world who contradicts right doctrine, but those that that are under his care or that, that are at, in his surrounding area, All right? Those, it's a particular group, those who contradict it, not the whole world, um, but those in his immediate context. The elder has to be able to rebuke them. And it's no surprise for us to read that word rebuke because we've already finished first and second timothy and we read some really potent language from paul about what you should do with false teaching and false teachers i mean the word rebuke there's no getting around it um this is not a kind um passive mamby-pamby kind of word i mean this this is rebuke with with all of the force of that word where you look somebody in the eye and with graciousness and love but still with the directness you say that's not right you're wrong all Right? everyone wants to We always want to use the negative. Well, that's not exactly right or that's close, but that's not really it. I mean, this verse says you have to be able to look at those people who don't have healthy doctrine and say you're wrong and you need to repent. I mean, that's that's the idea of rebuking. It's looking at them and saying uh, you're incorrect and you need you need to change that opinion. Uh, I just taught with the kids this morning uh, from Matthew 16. And um, Peter just makes this amazing declaration of Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And and Jesus says, you're blessed, Peter, because no person revealed this to you. But God, the father revealed it to you. And, and Jesus talks about I'm going to I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell won't be able to stand against it, prevail against it. And then he starts talking about how he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised again the third day. And Peter opens his mouth a second time, only this time, instead of saying something that's absolutely right. Peter actually looks at Jesus and he pulls him aside and he says, far be it from you, Lord, that you ha- you should have to suffer these things. And it says Jesus rebuked him and he said, Do you know, what Jesus said to Peter when he rebuked him. He said, get behind me. And then what did he call Peter? What name? He said he called him Satan. I mean, the like the three verses before God had just told Peter that you're you are part of the rock that I'm going to build this church on and. You are blessed above all these other disciples because they didn't get it figured out um, because actually God revealed it to you. You didn't figure it out either, Peter. God revealed this to you. And apparently the other disciples hadn't quite hadn't quite gelled uh, in their minds yet. They didn't have that revelation. And so we go from Peter, you're blessed and and God has revealed this to you to uh, Peter, you're Satan. Um, That's that was a rebuke. And he called him Satan, not because he became Satan, but because he started to side with Satan and Jesus tells him, you're setting your mind not on the things of heaven, but on the things of earth. All right. And that's the satanic way to th- care more about the temporal and the now than it is about the forever. All right. So Peter was siding with Satan when he told Jesus not to go to the cross. Um, that's what a rebuke looked like in, in Matthew 16. I, I mean, a rebuke can be something that's really quite potent. Um, and apparently that's OK. In fact, not only is it OK, it's commanded of what elders have to be able to do. And that is just so unpopular in our day that you would actually tell somebody that you're wrong, um, let alone that you would urge them to change their minds and accept the biblical way of approaching things. And yet there has to be something that's true about an elder. Um, not that an elder is a judgmental, critical person, but he's someone who can, who can rebuke those who need it. Um, because when you have a poisonous doctrine, when, when you have a false doctrine, it is, it is an unhealthy doctrine. You're actually bringing disease to the church of God and you're bringing harm to people. And that has to be realized. And we talk about doctrine. Um, again, if, if we don't think that doctrine matters, then we don't care so much about unhealthy doctrine. But actually, doctrine drives all that we think and all that we do. And so we have to care about the healthiness of our doctrine because it, it touches every aspect of our Christian life. All right, Doctrine matters. And I know we say that all the time, and I said it a lot this morning, um, but there's just no getting around it. Um, This is why an elder has to meet this qualification. He has to be able to instruct people in sound doctrine and rebuke people who don't have sound doctrine. The idea of rebuking is more than just contradicting. It has the idea of overthrowing their argument, of winning them over. And that's why I say, again, this this is probably addressed to people who are within the church, and it's not just scolding. It's actually overthrowing their ideas to win them to the truth, all right? So we're not just seeing a mean-spirited, vindictive outburst all right. We're actually seeing a rebuke that is designed to overthrow their argument and draw them back to the truth. All right. That's the goal of this kind of rebuking. Uh, famous commentator from the Reformation times said, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. All right. Two different voices. You need to have the voice that gathers and you have the voice that says, uh, get out of here. You're a wolf and a thief. All right. Exhort and rebuke are words that highlight the necessity of continuing in this. They're, they're ongoing words. Um, instructing and rebuking are things that go on over and over and over again. And if an elder is someone who is personally gripped by this truth, then he's going to be someone who has that ability to continue giving instruction and continue giving rebuke as long as it's needed. And a verse that comes to my mind um, that I think highlights too this, the personal component is actually from, from the Old Testament, from, from the book of Ezra. Um, Ezra 7.10 was, I think it's just a great picture of a leader who has been personally changed by the truth. And, and that's really what we're seeing in Titus 1.9. Um, we're seeing leadership uh, that is personally changed. That's a necessity uh, for leadership within God's church. There's someone who's personally convicted by truth. All right. Um, Ezra 7. All right. Ezra 7.10. Listen to this verse. That they, they really, I think... Um, parallels so very well Titus 1 9 Ezra 7 verse number 10 this is a description about Ezra this was the reason that that he was blessed and why he did what he did in the book of Ezra for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord all right that was step one for Ezra it was a personal step he devoted himself to studying the law of the Lord and there were some results of that and to do it all right Ezra said I'm going to study this word and I'm going to do this word personally all right it began with him and then it turned to and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I mean, this is a description, even in the Old Testament, of somebody who is personally gripped by the truth, who says, I'm going to obey the truth, and then I'm going to teach the truth. And that's, and that's what an elder must look like in the local church. He's somebody who's personally gripped by the truth, who has said, I'm going to do it, and now I'm going to teach it to others, and I'm going to rebuke those who contradict this truth. All right? That has to be a component of what an elder uh, is able to do, all right. It's a great it's a great picture of somebody who is not disconnected or professionally distanced um, from the truth, and and treats this as a textbook. It's somebody who is who is personally changed by the words that are here, and because he's personally changed, he's able to carefully instruct and also carefully rebuke. And this is what an elder must be, according to our Bibles. Okay. All right. A uh, short little verse, but really packed when we when we slow down to investigate and to uh and to look at all these words step by step um, there really is a lot of power in in every aspect of titus one nine and things that we need to be able to apply ourselves so, i mean we need to be able to ask ourselves, are we people who hold firm to the trustworthy word i mean do we do we know what the faithful word is, and do we have discernment to know what what false doctrine is, and what true doctrine is, and do we hang on to the true doctrine, or, or are we swayed by every new doctrinal breeze that comes along, or um, can we get pushed around? Um, Ephesians describes uh, children who are swayed by every wave of doctrine. Um, part of part of the church's goal, part of our goal, is to is for you to be built up so that you're not swayed by every wind of doctrine. Are you Are you someone who holds firm to the trustworthy word? Um, when someone presents uh, a an idea or a concept that is contrary to the Word of God, do you have the perception to say that's wrong, and then the strength of conviction to say I'm going to hang on to what is true, uh, and I don't and I don't care what that this person's scholarship. I don't care what his degrees are. I mean, I don't care what the archaeologist says. I'm I'm going to go with what the Word of God says if they're in conflict. All right. I mean, people get swayed from all kinds of things. Uh, the scientist says. The scientist comes up with another new reason. to argue for evolution? And there are Christians who go, man, I just can't overcome that one. I mean, that was a really good argument. So uh, I guess I'm going to have to buy into that somehow. Uh, And it goes on and on with any kind of doctrine. Are you someone who can hold on to the trustworthy word? Um, Are you around people? Are you around an eldership um, that that you are praying for as well as convinced that they're able to give you instruction in sound doctrine and are also able to rebuke those who contradict it. And, and are you willing, uh, especially if you're someone who is going to uh, join with join with our church and you are someone who is um, who is with us in in our, in our family, are, are you willing to embrace the, the stigma that comes when you have eldership who are willing to rebuke you and others? I mean, there's a stigma that comes with that in our society. If if you are part of a church that is willing to say there's right doctrine and there's wrong doctrine, uh, there are going mark it down. There are going to be people who are who are upset at that. It's going to bother them. I mean, it it should bother us if our if our rebuking is done in the wrong way, if we are arrogant and, and we are mean spirited and we are ugly. Uh, and yet we cannot run away from the fact that scripture calls us to rebuke wrong doctrine, especially within ourselves um are are you teachable am i teachable are are we willing to say all right i'll i'll accept and rebuke where i've thought wrongly and then i'll change i'll come around i'll let the truth of the day i'll let the truth of the word of god win the day and i'll bring my mind and my ideas into conformity to the word of god all right um these are these are all parts of what we're called to do within the church okay that's the end of titus 1 9 and we're actually uh just about out of out of time i don't know how that happened i thought this was going to be so quick um let me just take one brief moment anyone have any questions maybe from this morning um, maybe something in this morning's message was unclear or that you uh you were really curious about or even from tonight something that you're wondering about maybe an application or whatever ken right yeah i mean that, that's a great question and um Something that we haven't, um, you, you haven't heard a direct statement on that, and yet if, if you've been in um, Sunday school doing, d- going through um, our, our evangelism study, you've heard the fruit of what our, of what our philosophy is. What you're talking about is, is apologetics is, is the name for the presentation, presentation of the gospel um, and, and how we go about it. It's not apologizing for the gospel. It's a, it's a reasonable defense. And there, there are um, a couple different approaches to, to apologetics, um, and there are some that say if you can prevent, present enough evidences, um, give enough reasons, then you can sway people over to the gospel. Um, and then there's another camp um, that's called presuppositional. Um, that just means that you presuppose things um, going into an encounter with somebody and and you have to start with Scripture and you have to start with God. And uh, you don't you don't start with logical arguments or reasonable arguments. You start with the understanding that they're dead and their sins and that the only thing that's going to change their mind is the gospel. And so you give them the gospel. Uh, and that is um, that is certainly where our primary emphasis would be that you, you start with the gospel. You're never going to logic somebody in heaven. You're never going to reason someone in heaven. Um, what they need is the power of God. And even from what we studied this morning in First Corinthians, I I do think those who would take a more um, logical approach to sharing the gospel have to deal honestly with 1 Corinthians 1 that tells us that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I mean, it, it just looks dumb. No matter how you put it, put it, Christ dying on a cross and then rising from the dead, it looks foolish to the normal carnal mind. Uh, and so you're never going to be able to reason them into thinking that it looks wise so that then they accept it. And so you have to deal with that. It certainly is true that we have lots of, there are lots of evidences we can give for our faith. We have a reasonable faith. Um, our faith is not ridiculous. Uh, it's just a faith that to the world looks foolish because it doesn't make any sense that our Christ died on a cross. Um, but we have a very reasonable faith, and there are, there are lots of good reasons to have it. And yet, at, at the heart, our gospel presentation should start with the gospel because there's no evidence that will ever um, be the be the final convincing part of the debate that draws someone, you know, makes them turn the corner, all right? So probably a, what I'm saying is basically... Um, Start with the gospel and understand there is a balance that you can present evidence, but the evidence is never going to turn someone. So give the gospel. Um, that's what they need. Uh, and don't start, don't st- certainly don't start with a logical appeal. Uh, that's a fruitless endeavor to start there. I, I I think scripture would contend. That make sense? All right. Good question. Anything else? Okay, Great. Well, I hope you're uh, looking forward this week. Uh, those of you who are involved in grace groups, I think all of our groups are meeting this week. So whether you're in Reely or the Visalia area or here in Kingsburg, there will be a group uh, meeting and have some more chance to talk through some application of these things and uh, and really enjoy some more time together as God's people.